I'm realizing that we've had it all backwards and that it would have been nice in medical school if we had had a conversation about here are the emotions you're going to face when you're looking into the eyes of a 25-year-old male who was flown by helicopter into your intensive care unit with a post-viral cardiomyopathy and you will be resuscitating on his way to the operating room uh, for an LVAD. Uh, that was one example where I had no idea I'd be facing that as part of my training. And I just would have wished that someone might have prepared me uh, to deal with the emotions that came up. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Uh, my guest on today's show is Dr. Jonathan Fisher. And uh, Dr. Fisher actually has a very interesting title and role in his organization. He is a clinical cardiologist and uh, a clinical physician executive in organizational wellness and resiliency team at his organization, which is Novant Health. You know, it's an, it's an organization spanning four states and um, has 2,500 physicians and close to 40,000 employees. So it's a big organization. And to be in that leadership position with two other physician leaders in what is becoming an extremely important area of organizational wellness and, and also development and leadership and he's going to talk to us more about it, is, you know, mindfulness and, and wellness and, um, and, and resiliency. Um, because as we know, burnout is, is the new epidemic uh, that, is, that is afflicting and affecting, you know, our physician colleagues. So with that introduction, Jonathan, welcome on the show. And thank you so much for doing this for us. Ankur, thank you so much. It's really a uh, pleasure to be here. And when you invited me, uh, knowing your background, your history, uh, and the work that you've done in the world of cardiology, which is my home, I uh, jumped at the chance to get to talk with you. So thank you. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. I've been following your posts on, on LinkedIn for the vast majority, but also Instagram. And I know that you have found an important voice in in this area of physician wellness, which I think is at, at the crux of many organizations now, rightly so. It's found a, a spotlight for itself. And it's something which is important, obviously, because it, it is tied to outcomes. Uh, and, you know, you'll obviously go over this with, with our listenership. But I think if the physicians are feeling, you know, depressed or angry or burnt out, uh, it affects how they show up at work. And if it is affecting how they show up at work, it, it is going to affect how patients are going to get treated and what their outcomes are going to be. But do you want to talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. The reason that I'm interested in this area of wellness has nothing to do with medical school or training. You know, when I was a medical student at Mount Sinai, no one discussed well-being or the mental health, emotional health, the life satisfaction of the physicians or the students at that time. And certainly when I went up north to train at the Brigham, that was never discussed. It was purely about the practice of cardiology and the science of cardiology and the art of cardiology. And so I, I guess I was operating under the idea that if I just worked hard enough and I followed the curriculum, I would end up with this wonderful career uh, and I would get to help people and, and help the heart. And yet, 
there was this slow, insidious downward spiral that was happening, even as I was going through medical school, beginning with you know, spending three months on neuroanatomy without a single conversation about the deeper meaning of what it means to be inside of the body, to be exploring the connection between the mind and, and where, where was the spirit after the body was gone and so deeper questions, philosophical, existential questions. And then as a resident, facing lots of patients, young patients with cancer, with heart disease, cardiomyopathy, who were dying. And I had the most amazing residents uh, and fellows and attendings who taught me what I needed to know about the heart, but I learned zero about how to bear witness to tremendous suffering. And uh, what I didn't realize is that I was deeply empathic and that my natural extension of empathy for these sick patients was to feel their pain myself. And I have a sense that I wasn't alone in my sensitivity to this, though I guess it's not the typical cardiologist um, who, who may go experience it that way, which is why I'm attracted to your work. So this is the beginning of, of my own journey was medical school residency fellowship and things kind of went downhill from there relating to my own anxiety and depression, which was undiagnosed. And the reason I'm sharing that now um, is specific and strategic and it's to let our cardiology fellow colleagues know that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be going through these things. And frankly, I went to therapy in secrecy uh, all do my, during my residency training. And so what I realized that <laughs> after doing lots of work on myself uh, and spending about 10 years deeply exploring Eastern traditions and mind-body practices and Western psychological psychotherapeutic techniques, all while I was doing my cardiology practice, I realized that as I was sharing my own journey uh, my fellow cardiologists were kind of leaning in with curiosity and saying, what's going on with you? We've noticed some changes. And I began to share. And I'll, I'll pause right there, and I'm happy to jump back into the narrative wherever. But my journey uh, of discovery began over a decade ago, and I started presenting my findings in 2012 on a subject that very few people were speaking about, which was the connection between mindfulness and cardiovascular health, and I delivered a grand rounds a decade ago on that subject. Yeah, so, you know, thanks for uh, sharing your own story, and thanks for the vulnerability, and thanks for being open about it, and, and also, you know, using uh, your pain for a higher purpose, and, and that is to usher in organizational change and affect, uh, you know, your, your peers and colleagues. I think it's an extremely important area which you know requires further attention it actually requires further systematic investigation but you know if we, just to step back a, a little bit what were some of the changes you were observing in your own inner self um, you know through medical school residency and fellowship as you described mm. you know, it was a, it was you mentioned and you described it as an insidious downward spiral so if yeah. you know just for someone who's listening who um maybe going through what you went through early on yeah. and want to identify with those feelings or, or with, with that, with this phenomenon, hmm. how, how can you describe what you, what you were feeling? Yeah. When I look back, I remember myself as a very diligent medical student, really trying to get, you know, honors in all of my rotations. And so learning uh, to, to mirror and to mimic my uh, residents and fellows 
and sort of follow what they were doing. And the example that was set for me, I didn't realize it was unusual, but the example was to not pause, to not sit down and take a break and a deep breath, to not tell a story and have a laugh, uh, and also to not even stop to go to the bathroom when we needed to. So there was, at the beginning, there was this slow ignoring of basic bodily functions and basic human needs uh, for connection, for rest, relaxation, and nourishment. And the hours were long and call nights were uh, particularly brutal. So I, in retrospect, realized I was suffering from uh, sleep deprivation over the period of days, weeks, and months, so that I was almost feeling like a soldier in the barracks where I had this attitude, which went from, I'm excited to be a doctor to care for others, to, if I can just keep my energy and alertness up through this day, I will get through this day. And on the, in the best case scenario, uh, I won't uh, hurt anyone, and I'll perhaps help some people. But over time, I realized that what was best about me, what had been my greatest strength, which was empathy, curiosity, and kindness, uh, and the ability to communicate clearly, were really not prized at all. So I remember in medical rounds where what was really important was, could I memorize every word of my presentation? Could I get all the details straight? But there wasn't uh, any celebration of what I thought was my job, which was to connect on a human level with our patients. And so I began to conform to what was expected of me so that I could excel and I could do well uh, and hopefully advance to get a, a higher degree and go to a reputable institution. At the same time, I realized that uh, my exemplars, the attending physicians, who were absolutely brilliant, uh, some of them were incredibly kind and empathic, and I really kept an eye out for that. But there, there really was an emphasis more on the cerebral aspect of practicing medicine and the academic side as opposed to the human side. And so I kind of uh, left, was left with these emotions of confusion, uh, not knowing what to do with my emotional heart as I memorized more. And over time, I um, I started to lose my spirit of, of why I went into practicing medicine in the first place. And it became very mechanical, almost robotic, going through rounds, going through the motions. I remember how proud I was when I was a resident and I, I had all the checklists and I it was almost a game. How many, how many checkboxes could I have for each patient? But looking back, that had so little to do with the art of healing, which now, as I'm entering the second half of my career, I'm realizing that we've had it all backwards and that it would have been nice in medical school if we had had a conversation about, here are the emotions you're going to face when you're looking into the eyes of a 25-year-old male who was flown by helicopter into your intensive care unit with a post-viral cardiomyopathy, and you will be resuscitating on his way to the operating room. Uh, for an LVAD. Uh, that was one example where I, I had no idea I'd be facing that as part of my training. And I just would have wished that someone might have prepared me uh, to deal with the emotions that came up. Or the 35-year-old uh, woman on my oncology rotation in fellowship, in residency, who had a metastatic uh, breast cancer to the brain. Uh, and my rounding with her each day was a direct mirroring of my best friend from college, whose mother was just diagnosed with a metastatic cancer. And so I had no one to talk to about these uh, these very confusing emotions. And um, I did what I knew how to do, which was to put them aside and stuff them down and to double down on my 
working hard and paying attention and putting on a good face. And over time, what happened there is that created an internal disconnection in my own lived experience. On the one hand, there was the physician who was showing the outside world what a physician was supposed to be at a Harvard hospital. And on the other hand, uh, this deep wounded part of me was being walled off with these just layers of bricks that I was building slowly, slowly to keep them from coming up. And often I would uh, act in maladaptive ways. So I would spend, you know, I would go shopping on the internet or I, I would just spend time by myself, hours by myself and avoid other people. And just at the moment during my training, when I needed more social and human connection and to express myself, I had no outlets and I kept myself alone. And that cycle continued to the point of real anxiety uh, and eventually depression. And then when I became an attending physician, I entered the world of uh, organized medicine, working in a large healthcare system where I found myself with an email each week showing exactly where I fit on a graph of uh, RVUs. And as it turned out, as a non-invasive cardiologist, I was uh, dead last at the group of a group of about 60 cardiologists. Uh, though my patient experience scores have been in the top 1%, my revenues didn't match that. And I just began to question what this was all about. What was the point of this anyway? And so I had deep, deep, uh, real sense of forsakenness uh, of, of my own life. And those were some of the changes, Ankur, that were happening uh, while the outside world had no idea. I kept it to myself. Um, you know, I, so much of what you just answered has resonates, uh, you know, with me in person, but also, you know, resonates with a lot of physician colleagues that I know who's, you know, who struggle with, you know, the, the emotions um, that we see at work uh, each day, you know, because of the field we're in, we are meeting patients when they're at their most vulnerable mm. and, um, you know, they, they're going through uh, turmoil either themselves or, you know, for their loved ones. I mean, I had uh, this experience of being a patient myself when my son was operated last year, I actually ended up penning down what I went through as a father who happened to be a cardiologist, mm. um, uh, you know, was uh, TCTMD was, was gracious enough to, to publish that as a blog. And then, you know, just uh, getting back to your, uh, you know, comment on organized healthcare and, and metric medicine is what I call it is, you know, every interaction that we have as physicians with our patients becomes a data point. Hmm. And um, it is, uh, you know, relayed to us in the form of, you know, metrics and work RVUs and, uh, you know, our efficiencies and, and slot utilization. Hmm. And then you start to question, you start to question as to why you entered, you know, healthcare and medicine mm. at the first place. And, and, and those questions resurface and you sort of uh, try to rekindle with your original self as a teenager or someone in high school who was inspired to get to, to go into medicine, to touch lives, make a difference, be emotionally present for your patients and, and their loved ones. And when you sort of meet the modern face of, healthcare and I don't know if it's a US phenomenon or if, if it's something which is global. Uh, but you know, there are global burnout rates and maybe you'll talk to us more about that. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I, I think what you are bringing 
to the fore is is crucial is crucial for how we identify with with our own selves when we see ourselves in the mirror each morning mm. and and you know what we what we interface at work in terms of you know the the metric report card that we are handed over maybe on a monthly basis or a weekly basis um how how did you communicate that to your organization and how your own experience is now manifesting in what you are discussing in the C-suite or the boardrooms mm-hmm. um, as an as a person who's involved with organizational wellness and resiliency. So I wish, Ankur, I could say that I was an assertive young physician. And when I witnessed organizational practices that dehumanized and at times humiliated the doctors who were sacrificing their lives, that I stepped forward and spoke bravely and clearly uh, in favor of change. But that's not what happened. Um, I I was swimming in this environment that really, um, I'm going to say, is designed. Some of the structures and systems we work in are designed to remove the humanity uh, of those who operate inside of it. And I don't mean designed in a nefarious or um, uh, malignant sense. Often it happens unconsciously through the basic capitalist structures and uh, the business school uh, training that many healthcare leaders are given. And I, I think that healthcare is different than most other industries in that those that rise to the ranks of leadership often are the ones that have zero training or experience in the very practice that the organization is uh, stewarding. And so uh, I responded by keeping quiet, which was my default behavior when I noticed that I was being measured. And I may have spoken up once and said, to a colleague, you know, when my name is is visible at the bottom of a list of 60 of our partners as uh, being the lowest earner, it, it feels wrong. It feels um, like it's it's punishing me in a way. And I was told that this is what they found motivated physicians to work harder. And for me, in retrospect, that shows a real lack of understanding uh, of how people are motivated. Because high achievers are not necessarily motivated by made to uh, to to feel uh, bad about themselves. Uh, there are other ways to motivate high achievers, which we can get into later. And so the change at the higher level really happened much more slowly. And I realized that I wasn't going to change the system. And this is something I, I'm sure you hear and I hear all the time when I speak to you know, thousands of physicians in, in systems across the country and even Last year, I put on the world's first global summit on ending physician burnout. And we, I had representatives from 43 countries, over a thousand people were there. So I got to hear the stories that what I thought was unique about, uh, you know, the California hospitals and the Maryland hospitals were really the same as, as in Saudi Arabian hospitals and in Kuwaiti hospitals, you know, the way that doctors feel around the world and APPs and nurses uh, is is really uh, agnostic to what country you're living in. There's something about the way healthcare has been organized. Uh, and some of this relates to uh, organizational design in general, which is still in evolution. We forget that you know, modern industry is less than 150 years old or so. And the models of business in the West uh, lately have tried to emulate uh, the Japanese models leading to lean thinking. Um, but 
as in so many cases, healthcare industry is about 15 years behind other industries. And so I don't believe we've adopted some of these best practices. And so where I am today is because of my own initiatives and my own work, which was done after hours for a number of years, giving presentations uh, in, in shadowy rooms, leading uh, stress reduction workshops, and beginning to speak out on social media about what I was personally experiencing, realizing that my only power was my voice and that this shy, introverted person who was not comfortable speaking up in a group, if I was going to live any kind of a life that I had dreamed of, that I would respect, I would have to discover my own voice and be comfortable saying things that were uncomfortable. And as I was doing that, others in my field, in my institution were listening, and I began to become invited into conversations, not because I was uh, argumentative, because I'm typically not, not because I'm confrontational, but I think because I am able to take the perspective of the suffering physician on the one hand, and on the other hand, bring deep empathy to leadership and to executives and managers, and realize that it's not an us against them, as so many of my colleagues have communicated through the years. It's, it's, that, it's that really pernicious attitude um, that many physicians have and many executives have that uh, we are fighting each other. And I think in my own studies of communication and negotiation uh, that it's only when we can get past those barriers to seek common ground and to really hold empathy for people that we might not have been uh, sensitive to in the past that we can sort of begin to co-create a new reality for healthcare. And, and then I was in, invited into larger and larger conversations and eventually invited to uh, do work uh, two days a week on the organizational well-being and resiliency team, which is, uh, I'm proud to say, one of, I would say, the top 10 such teams in, in the country uh, in healthcare in terms of programs and initiatives. And that's thanks to the work of our chief well-being officer, Dr. Tom Jenicky, who had this idea 10 years ago uh, before we were talking about physician well-being. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's terrific, you know, what you just said. And, you know, to, to think that uh, modern healthcare design is, you know, just 150 years old and is still in evolution is when, when you, when you put it, in that terms and you, and you give it that, that age, uh, you know, and, you know, obviously us in medicine, knowing how evolution occurs. And I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it personally was enlightening to me that it's, it's a very young system hmm. and it's still an evolution. And, you know, the, the evolution will happen through trial and error. And I think it's important for us to, you know, have that reflection, self-reflection hmm. of, how we're feeling and what do we think about the system that we're in mm. to usher in change. And, you know, I really congratulate you for the courage to be vulnerable on social media and finding a voice on social media and, um, you know, sort of becoming a catalyst for change in your own way and, you know, in your own world. And, and then, you know, obviously what you were saying was resonating with, with, you know, colleagues and, and health and some of the healthcare leaders, uh, you know, across the boundaries and, and, and globally that uh, you had enough traction to 
uh, organize the the summit that you did. So you know, c- congratulations to you for the work that you've done, and um, I'm I'm going to uh, you know utilize this as um, a segue to get into what are some of the conversations that you're having with uh, you know your physician leader friends um, at the organizational wellness and resiliency team at Novant Health. Yeah. And how have you utilized some of your own experiences in pain to usher in change for, for a higher purpose, which, you know, clearly you're on a path to what I would interpret as spiritual higher purpose. I mean, I've, I've written about mm. spirituality in cardiovascular medicine, let alone medicine. Uh, and also, uh, you know, trying to sort of learn from what the what my spiritual text which is the bhagavad gita has mm. has taught you know taught us 5000 years ago it's it's more a way of life than a, you know a, a text which may be associated with re, with religiosity and i've sort of written about that in the european heart journal and you know you've been mm. very complimentary of some of these works that i've published mm. so thank you for that but um getting back to my question how, how are you having these conversations in your organization and what are the stuff, what are some of the steps that you're taking? The way I think about having conversations at an organizational level, and, and really I've had to reflect on this because as you know, it's not part of the medical school curriculum. And uh, like many of our colleagues, I haven't gone to business school. And so um, the way that we approach it is really uh, like any conversation. It has to begin first with listening. And I think uh, part of the problem, if you call it that, what's in the last decade or so is that you know, physicians and nurses and providers have just been just been destroyed emotionally and physically um, because of a lack of listening and a sensitivity to uh, what we've been going through. So the first thing we do in these conversations is we say, how can we listen, but listen at scale? So a, a conversation in an organization is really no different than conversations among individuals. We You have to frame the right questions, first of all. And the questions that we ask have to be questions that don't seem gratuitous, unnecessary, rhetorical, like so many surveys. Every organization now hopefully has some kind of a survey instrument that's being used to get a sense, to take the pulse, uh, to check the temperature, whatever metaphor you like, of how people are feeling. So it begins by uh, listening. uh, And that's usually, uh, you know, in our organization, we have created our own metric. But um, the key is not to spend too much time, you know, making sure that you've picked exactly the right metric. It's just to get started with the intention of asking questions that will lead to real change. So not, uh, and I think there have been studies on metrics in healthcare, and I'm sure you know some of this data that uh, at least 50% of the metrics that organizations are tracking are clinically irrelevant. And so we're trying to ask questions like, um, what is your level of anxiety? Uh, what is your sense of well-being in your life? Uh, what is your sense that this organization cares about you? What is, this, what is your sense that your, your colleagues and your, your boss, if you will, um, have your, your well-being in mind? So really basic questions. And then taking that data in and feeding it back at scale to leaders of the various service lines and showing them what they didn't already know. You know, we all have blind spots. We have our, 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 our retinal um, attachment where we all have a blind spot that we, we would never know about until someone showed us. It's the same thing in, in each department. And so the head of cardiology might not realize that half of 
her uh, team members are thinking about getting another job in the next few years. So that would be a question to ask. So that's the first step is listening. Uh, along with that, at the same time, in a good conversation, it's also empathically communicating. So it's speaking to you in a way that shows you, I first care most about your pain and your suffering and alleviating it. And this is just as I think doctors are well positioned to be part of a large organizational conversation because we, we really come to this from a place of empathy and wanting to alleviate suffering. And part of what I do is I use language that shows that I have been there and I continue to be there and I continue to take overnight call and I witness you know, what happens. So there's a listening and then there's an empathic communication that I am with you and I hear you and I care about your suffering and I'm committed to doing something. And then it gets to interventions. So, you know, there's two, broadly speaking, two aspects to the burnout crisis. You know, burnout is not due to deficient resiliency. And there was a broken model of helping physicians for a few years there where it was about, you know, buying pizza and having yoga class and a little bit of meditation here and there. And I think that even mindfulness and meditation was uh, misapplied for a number of years there. Um, and so what we know now is that anytime we speak to providers, we have to frame it in the context of a broken system. And not to say that the entire system is broken, but at least to acknowledge that the primary drivers of burnout are systemic in terms of lack of autonomy for the people doing the work, a, a, a lack of flexibility in our scheduling, a, a burdensome, a clerically heavy EMR system, a lack of a sense of support uh, in the office and lots of obstacles. So framing the interventions in terms of there are organizational operational changes that need to happen. Those are top priority. And, and this is where the conversation also often goes off track. Physicians, typically the ones who are already burnt out say, don't help me. Don't tell me how to help calm my own nervous system and to communicate more effectively because you're blaming me when you do that. I want you to focus on the system only. And I feel like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we do that. And we take that approach. We're losing out on a lot of potential uh, avenues to help really suffering providers. So we have sort of two arms. There's the operational reform arm looking at finance and scheduling and staffing. And the, we have a, a cutting edge um, IT leader who's a physician herself who's working to reform our, our EMR system uh, so that it's user friendly. And on the other side, we look at how can we support our individual providers, regardless of what place on the spectrum of complete burnout to uh, wonderful human thriving they are. And there are, right currently, there's between 50 and 60 initiatives that we have going on at any given time across an organization with 38,000 employees. Uh, and these are programs for physician executives, other leaders, nurse leaders, uh, APPs, et cetera. And they range from, I'll, last week I led uh, a, a session on self-compassion and its scientific benefits. Uh, next week I'm speaking about a mindfulness practice across all aspects of healthcare, including patients, uh, physicians, and executives. Uh, we have a robust coaching program, which is offered to all of our providers, um, anywhere from a half a day to a three-day off-site retreat for anyone who's interested. So the um, the specifics are, are fascinating and they're fun to look at, 
but I've tried to paint a broader view of how we go about uh, looking at where the pain is, looking at ways that we can rapidly, efficiently alleviate the pain. And then the last piece of this puzzle, like any good scientist, is look at the data. What is the measured impact of each of these initiatives? Um, what is the cost? What is the return on investment? And ultimately, as you referred to at the beginning of the conversation, what is the impact on these initiatives on downstream measures of patient safety, uh, patient experience, physician experience, outcomes, and uh, the financial well-being of the institution? Yeah, we have fascinating work, and um, I'm, I'm almost tempted to ask you if you have, you know, a sneak peek into some of the data that you may have accrued uh, through the initiatives that you just described. But, you know, I think of of the several that you educated us on, the one that, that particularly piqued my interest was, was the retreat. Um, and, you know, also to the comment that you raised, which actually is a comment that I've heard from several physician colleagues is, you know, just don't tell me what, what to do or, you know, don't tell me what needs to be done. And you clearly know that that, that is a, that is a, an, an upset colleague who is upset at the way the system has treated him or her and is upset at the clunkiness of the electronic medical record hmm. um, and is upset at the, you know, millionth click that we have hmm. to, we have to, um, you know, participate in or do in order to get the work done. Hmm. What do you, what have you learned uh, in, in, in your um, experience uh, rendering this work, uh, you know, not only amongst physicians, but amongst allied healthcare professionals and, and other employees in a healthcare organization? I'm, hmm. I'm genuinely curious. So there, there's uh, so many aspects of, of the experience of the physician that we're interested in that, you know, we can speak about. And when I, again, it's physician, I'm referring to um, all providers and all team members. And what I've found interesting is that, you know, we can't do this alone. So if you're interested in well-being uh, and metrics, we have to have people on the team, and we do, who are experts in uh, data science uh, and really slicing data across all job families. And there are, there are dozens of different job families across any healthcare institution. And it's not enough to say, what is the level of burnout among uh, our team members? You have to say, are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? Uh, where, what region are you working in? And then breaking it down further, we, we, and we know that Medscape and other surveys have done this well, saying, you know, what's the difference between our, our male employees and our female employees? Uh, and how about those in the early, mid, or late career? Because the interventions that are offered cannot be a one-size-fits-all. And the career needs are highly dependent on where cardiologists and others are in their career, in their trajectory. And the supports that they need are going to change over time. So in terms of uh, you know, what we've noticed on the measuring side is that burnout rates are high in our institution as they are in every institution across the country. Um, in terms of the next question is, so how many of our employees and your employees will actually utilize the programs that you offer? Because as you just referred to, you know, the instinct is to brace yourself and say, this is a bunch of nonsense. I don't want your help. I just want to see change. And so um, what we're seeing is that the rates of utilization of our initiatives are higher than national average. So if you ask any physician in the country, it might be 10 or 20% say that their organization has meaningful initiatives there really trying to help them. Uh, and our numbers are, are north of that. 
And then you you were interested in the retreat. Uh, what we know is that physicians who come on retreat, and we have narrative data and we have also numerical data that show the majority have an experience of a life-changing turning point where many of them are on the verge of either leaving their career uh, or leaving this job. And at the end of the three days, they've had some deep insights into their habitual patterns of reactivity, of behavior, and they've been able to reconnect with their deeper sense of purpose. And there's ample data showing that the coaching model that we use, and this has been published in you know our medical journals, uh, is effective at helping physicians through burnout, even while organizational change is happening. So it should not be an either or, it's a matter of both. And those uh, now over, I think it's 1,000 or 1,500 who've gone through the program in the last few years um, have the highest rates of job satisfaction uh, in our organization. And this is, again, not as a result of working in a different department than their colleagues, but simply as a result of going through a powerful experience uh, in a supportive environment. Uh, you know, the, this is, uh, you know, extremely fascinating. And, and thank you for sharing that with us. And also thank you for for the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm you know, almost enticed to look at some of the medium, short-term, medium-term, and long-term data that you accrue, um, you know, through the interventions that you're you're conducting and carrying at your own workplace uh, to see if, uh, you know, we can emulate your practices at institutions across North America or, you know, perhaps across the globe. Because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, th this phenomenon is, is agnostic to geography. It's, it's as much a phenomenon in Saudi Arabia as it is in Kuwait and, mm. and other countries as it is in, in the U.S., and trying to summarize what, what we've learned and, you know, just getting to some of the important closing remarks, if you may, for the, for the topic that we've discussed. And it, it clearly is a very, very important topic for anyone who's interested in organizational psychology and organizational leadership and particularly wellness and, and resiliency. Mm. Um, before I ask you to, you know, share some of the closing remarks with us, uh, I want your perspective on the term resiliency, because I know for many it's viewed in in an adversarial connotation. Hmm. Uh, so maybe if you could share with us what you think is resiliency to you, because hmm. um, you know for some it could be that you know I suffered tremendous hardship and and tremendous bullying or harassment or you know moral erosion at work and hey, look, I'm still alive. You know, I haven't committed suicide and that's resiliency. Mm. Uh, but, you know, obviously there's more to it. So what, you, what is your perspective on resiliency? The first time I heard the word resiliency was a few years back in my own institution. And I saw that they were offering resiliency training. And, and I think the coaching retreat that I was referring to even was referring to that. And immediately I had a visceral reaction of disgust and anger. Uh, that I was being told in a way, it was suggested somehow that after 20 years of training and sleepless nights and sacrificing, you know, my young marriage and my children uh, in favor of my career, that I somehow was not resilient. It was uh, the bitterest pill. And so I, I knew that in my own work, if I was going to step into this arena and to develop a voice, I was going to have to speak to that and help uh, reframe the language in the conversation. And so I can tell you my own thinking about resiliency. If you look up 
the word resiliency in the dictionary, there are two definitions which I think are horrible. And most doctors uh, will are, are currently abiding by without necessarily knowing it. So you alluded to the first one, you know, resiliency, the idea that you make it through an incredibly challenging time and you, you make it through and you just tough it up. And um, so that's one definition of resiliency. Now, the second has more to do with a sense of flexibility. So if, if I throw um, you know, a challenging patient at you, you can kind of you know, do a little bit of Aikido and you can figure things out and make it through a very uh, difficult situation and bring the patient through with flexibility. The, the, the better definition, I think, is neither of those. It's neither a simple flexibility and a bouncing back to where you were before, your baseline, nor uh, just a toughness, which is look how, uh, look how um, straight I can stand despite being knocked down so many times. And it really has to do with aiming the bar much higher for our lives and aiming the bar as high as having a life that's as full and as rich and as spiritually satisfying as any life could ever be. And you may say, this guy is living on a cloud. What does he think? Now, this is aspirational, but part of what happens to physicians, and we didn't discuss this before during our training, is that our hope is eroded over time. Our hope that anything will change in the system, which seems very inhumane. And we develop what Martin Seligman, who was the father of the field of positive psychology, called a learned helplessness, learned helplessness, almost like dogs who've been tied down for so long that when an electric shock is delivered, even if our leash is removed, we fail to jump because we forget that we even have a choice and any autonomy. And that's what I felt like when I first read that research. I recognized myself in it. And so this is really to say that my message is that we need to have hope as physicians, number one. Um, we, if we want change to happen, we have to also look at ourselves and our own um, difficulties and how we put ourselves forward and how effective we expect to be in making change if no one is listening to us. So if I come at a system with nothing but anger and rage, which is reasonable, and yet I don't know how to play the game of business and conversation and negotiation uh, and finding win-win solutions, I really have very little hope. So my message is to help physicians ground themselves. And I have this next year, we didn't talk about it, but next year's initiative, which I just began, is uh, a year-long week-by-week uh, training and curriculum in the science of total well-being, uh, just for physicians and providers. Uh, going through the science of positive psychology step-by-step -step in, a, in a serial manner, teaching the practices of mindfulness, self-compassion, and teaching the basics of empathic and effective communication so that all of us can have the same tools and be on the same page in learning how to make the change that we so desperately desire. Um, you know, Jonathan, this is, this is fascinating. And, I, uh, you know, I can tell you that we've only barely scratched the surface and I'm, I'm probably going to have you back, hmm. um, you know, as a follow-up of, of some of the many important, you know, insightful concepts that you've introduced, you know, on, you know, on self-compassion, particularly for physicians and what, and what that is and what that sounds like and looks like, and also mindfulness. But again, uh, thank, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us. And thanks for sharing the kind of work that you're doing in your organization with us. And, mm. uh, you know, more power to you. And, you know, hopefully we can usher in a change which is much needed and required. And, you know, in, in doing that, you'll not only help 
physicians and providers in your organization, but also, uh, you know, nationally and across the globe. So I really congratulate you uh, for what you're doing and, uh, you know, also congratulate your organization in identifying you as a champion for leading this this charge and and this this change and in the meantime i just let's all stay connected on social media um linkedin is really my primary home so if anyone wants to say hello there i'd be happy to speak uh, to you and if you want to join the community it's it's a group on linkedin with over 1300 members it's called ending clinician burnout global community and all of our events are are announced there instagram as well um yes and you know jonathan thanks again great conversation and uh you know for our listenership you know please drop in your feedback um you know i personally read uh all the feedback that we receive you know whether it's through email or through direct messages uh you know or on twitter or on apple podcasts or soundcloud or spotify uh this is obviously very meaningful for us as we continue to develop and get guests like dr fisher on the show who are doing incredible work not only in medicine but also in the space of how medicine is delivered, how physicians feel. Uh, you know, again, physician wellness is, is crucial and important because, you know, if you, if you take care of the, the physician, then, you know, obviously it's going to have ramifications on outcomes. And, you know, we eat, all of us, you know, myself included and Dr. Fisher, we went into medicine to usher in, uh, you know, wellness and, and health for our patients. I think if we can extrapolate that to our own self and our, our, our colleagues, you know, that's obviously an, an incredibly important work. So Jonathan, thanks again. Thank you so much, Ankur, for all you do and for having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.